The Anchism Podcast, brought to you by our proud sponsor, Kixinto. As Canada's premium reseller of authentic sneakers, Kixinto offers free shipping in Canada and the USA. With a wide selection of the most exclusive Jordans, Yeezys, and other premium products, you can trust Kixinto for all your sneaker needs. Don't miss out on the latest drops and limited releases. Visit their website at www.kixinto.ca to shop now and step up your sneaker game. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Holmes. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, thank you. All the better for seeing you, actually. It's great, an opportunity to talk with you and to hopefully uh, offer some of my thoughts. You have played different roles over the years when it comes to contributing to education and child services. Were you always academic? I think I was absolutely always um, fascinated by, by learning. And uh, I don't mean just learning for an academic sense, but learning you know, life skills and things that are out there, which are very valuable things that, that people learn uh, throughout their life outside of uh, educational settings. But I always had a drive, genuinely always had a drive to be involved in teaching, learning, supporting people to develop and developing uh, you know, my, own, my own skills because life is a, a learning journey. And Professor Holmes, you have been here for 18 years, but that's just your contribution to the Northwest and to the Bolton University, the Bolton community. I know you have been a governor at several places, whether it's Arts and Theatre, whether it's Bury College, whether it's S Academy. So how does it feel having, spending 18 years at an institution? You must love it being here. I mean, I do love it, but I can't believe it's 18 years. You know, you look and think, how did that pass so quickly? It's, uh, I mean, it's one of the life lessons, if you like, is that, uh, you know, live very much in the present uh, because it goes so quickly and you've just got to maximise your, your own experiences and your own enjoyment and support others to do that. And uh, I think, you know, there's a, a message one thinks that the, 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 truth, uh, the truth or the way to happiness is to make it so for other people. And I think, you know, 18 years of an opportunity here to help make it so. You know, these are big team efforts universities are enormous team activities amongst you know everybody in the university who does a, any form of role in the university and of course the student body enormously a team effort um, but to be part of that team to make it so for other people to make other people fulfilled happy achieve their life potential and you know people have difficulties along that journey but to be able to do that is a phenomenal privilege and more than that it just in a blink of an eye 18 years has gone and you know, I look forward to possibly not the other 18 years you never know uh, if, if health uh, persists but uh, um, my take on it would be uh, 18 years has gone very very rapidly. You said you have been here for 18 years and can you tell people who want quick results that 18 years is not an easy ride? It's not that every day was the same. You had different challenges every day, didn't you? And along the journey, when you started the role, the university was in a very different position than it is now. Yeah, I think it's fair to say things have evolved and changed and I hope improved in many ways as, as an institution. Um, universities in the United Kingdom have been around a very long time. You know, the, the great universities that you can name in the south of England, the Oxfords, the, the Cambridges, have been around, what, eight, nine hundred years, maybe even more. Um, and we've been around here at Bolton as the institute for almost 200 years. 198 years now, uh, 200 years in, in, in two years' time, in 1825 to 2025 coming up. And um, in that time, you know, institutions evolve and it's a slow process. 
know, uh, culture change of organizations, the way organizations respond to society, uh, the way they meet the needs of their learners, the way they meet the needs of employment sectors, the way they clearly and importantly meet the needs of all colleagues who are working in these organizations, it, it changes over time. I would imagine, you know, in 1825, this was a very different institution to what it was in 1925, you know, straight after the Great War, and, and I'm sure it'll be very different again in, in 2025, and my contribution to that, along with lots of long-serving, the great thing about Bolton, there's a lot of long-serving colleagues here who have been working here and committed to what this organisation does for a very long time. And no and matter what role they are in? In every role, in every role, you know, you get people doing, you name a role in the organisation, there are people here who've been here, you know, one member of staff, uh, I remember... Uh, over 50 years of service, uh, from young, uh, you know, young young person to retiring person, you know, in terms of his his service, uh, Bolton through and through. And so my contribution and they has been uh, a small part of that whole process, but also I think is an important part of making it clear that you cannot you know, to be an over to be an overnight an overnight success as an organisation takes a very long time, and that's the paradox of it that. You know, Quick wins, uh, yes there are quick wins, there's low hanging fruit, there are things people can do, but in many cases it's the colleagues who have put a very long hard slog into this over many, many years about improving the standards of the way students perceive us, the, the teaching and learning which is, you know, it's always been very, very good in this university. Nobody would ever, I think, criticise the teaching and learning that's gone on here. But it's getting better and better and better all the time because the efforts of those colleagues. And I think helping to set that direction with the governing body, helping to set the objectives that say, look, you know, this is really a student-first organisation right now. Um, I'm not saying it hasn't been a student-first organisation, but it's really putting that at the, at the forefront. Because sometimes, you know, with long-term policies, particularly national policies, you get mixed messages. And mixed messages can be, you know, from policymakers in different governments saying we want this from a university or this from a university or this, you know. And we um, saw that in COVID, didn't we? Mixed messages. Oh, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, but again, that was a, I won't say a unique situation because there has been one pandemic before, hasn't that we've all been aware of the global pandemic? What, 18, Spanish uh, flu? Uh, Spanish flu, 19, 1918, 1919. Yes. Um, but in, in modern times, that was a unique, a unique period, a very sad and unique period. But therefore, there was no obvious blueprint for how to get out of it and therefore you got mixed messages didn't you so often people criticize the people who were making in policy so-called in charge of the country at that time in terms of you know um, but you have to remember that they were going down a route map that hadn't been easily mapped out for them that even with all the plans in the background you know you can't you can't um, predict uh, the most difficult thing to predict in my experience in life is human behavior and human reaction you cannot guarantee what the reaction of one group of people or an individual might be to a circumstance until it happens. And so if you're a policymaker, that's a really difficult issue for them. You spoke about student perception, and I really like that. How much do the students matter to you? And how do you want to be perceived by the students? Because I know that you love this role. I've worked with you in the senior management, I've worked with you on the governor, so I know, and I've worked with you through a crisis. But I had a different perception because of several external people who wouldn't know you but have a perception about you. So how would you tell people who are listening to the university community, to the potential students who want to come here or want to pursue higher education, how much does a vice chancellor care about his students? I think what he can recognize is that we're only here because of the students. There's no point in having an organization that's self-serving. You know, the organization has to be for the purposes of delivering 
best quality experience for those individuals who are effectively, and some people don't like this term, and, and you know, in parts I don't like the term customer, but they, the people who effectively are paying the bills, the people who are coming along and making sure that the organisation thrives and survives are the students. But more importantly that, on a sort of a meta level or a, uh, an intellectual level or a personal level, uh, you don't join education. You know, all my colleagues here, you know, you talk to all my colleagues on the teaching staff of this university, on the teaching uh, learning support staff, on the research staff, they're all here because they believe in what they do and they believe in what they do because they believe in their students. They're here to serve their students. I, I've never as, as yet met someone in our type of organisation. I've worked in a few similar types of organisation. Everyone's unique. But I haven't met anyone yet who's come in and gone, do you know what, I'm doing a job here that's not for the benefit of the students. They all, and, and that's absolutely central to a Vice-Chancellor's role, have to be focused on what's best for achieving the outcome for the student. What is it the student needs? Because everybody who comes to this university wants something different. You know, they all want education in one form or another, but they want it for a different purpose. And they, they might want it for a career, they might want it for their own personal development, uh, they might want it as a, an exploration of a new area of, of, their, of their life, uh, self-development, self-actualization. Uh, some people might want it for uh, an income profile at the end of it. Some people want it because they want to give more back to society. Everybody has a... I mean, you could go on forever, but some people... Um, People have to realise that because education is a universal, really positive good, um, it's used for so many different really good purposes. And so as a, as a Vice-Chancellor, as a head of a university, you have to recognise that your student group are unique, they vary every year, they're full of very, very important individuals. Um, and it's, sometimes it's an odd word in the modern society, the word individual, actually, because you're talking about a wider social norm as well. But every person has got their own contribution to make to this university. You think about your own contributions, which have been enormous to the university, but every person that comes through the door, staff, student, external visitor, has a contribution to make. And as an educator, and, and that's primarily what every Vice-Chancellor I know sees themselves as a, an academic educator, and I see myself very much as an educator. And you tell that you miss doing oh. lectures and you miss doing economics and the great the greatest pleasure in uh, in academic life and it is the greatest pleasure is seeing someone the penny drops if you like if that's an old-fashioned term in terms of the idea as sort of the light's gone on in their head and they've spotted what this particular topic or area means and they, their face lights up they're delighted that they've seen the seen the concept the idea it's taken them on to the next stage and uh, as an educator there's nothing there is nothing better than seeing learning in action it happen and students achieve and they feel uh, fulfilled by it and they feel changed by it in a positive way that they want to change themselves by it's not about us changing the student it's about the student changing themselves by an experience and engagement with what they're engaging with and their unique engagement with it makes all the difference uh, professor holmes how important is the business aspect to the university because during my time at governors i remember how important it is to stay afloat and how important it is to earn some sort of profit or be in a positive financial year to keep the university healthy, keep the students happy, provide them facilities. So do you feel when people look at the vice chancellor, do they undermine the business aspect of your role? Well, first of all, you have to remember this is an education institution and it's a not-for-profit education institution and that's what public universities are in the United Kingdom and so profit is not a concept that we're interested in. Right. What we're interested in is the ability to create sufficient resource 
that invests for future so that student experience gets better and better and better. And so you have to manage the resource, the total resources, in a way that targets what's needed now and has another eye on what's needed next, as it were, in terms of the future. And of course, it's really important to balance the books, as it were, because you know we've all seen examples in you know, in industry in, in nations where countries great institutions are filled up. Absolutely, and you know some of those names in the high street you would never imagine would have gone. They've been there over a hundred years, some of them, and they've they've disappeared because for all sorts of reasons, the markets change, their products change, the context has changed, the way they've been managed has change not in the way that was needed to accommodate the market perhaps. Uh, in our case you have to manage the finances in a way that ensures that income and expenditure are somewhere near aligned. Okay, So it's not about profit, it's about aligning whilst giving you headroom or enough headroom to grow the business. And make future in, in investments? Investment, future. So take the medical college for example as a good illustration of future investment. You know, NCM. At National Centre of Motorsport Engineering, Bolton One, for example, the new the new business school, the Dental Sciences School, you know, and so on could go on. The Chancellor's Building, the new Student Union area, etc. All those required um, the ability to generate sufficient resources to invest for the future. But the great thing is, we don't have shareholders, we don't have profits, uh, we don't have we don't have dividends to return to large international finance houses. What we have here is effectively dividends to return to students. When I was at the Governors, I knew how important certain projects were for you and your focus was to have enough money to invest in new buildings and expanding the student experience for the students. So I am a testament to that, the two years that I spent. But Professor Holmes, the situation was not always the same when you joined. You were 35, the youngest Vice-Chancellor in the country at the time. And I think still that is the case. I'm certainly, I, I certainly was the youngest. I'm certainly not the youngest now. <laughs> um, there are others have come in after me, but but no one I think any younger at the point where they took up their post. So that was quite a remarkable uh, sort of personal achievement. Yes, yeah, I suppose a stroke of luck. You know, be the right place at the right time, uh, have the right job come up, um, be able to match the the specification, and and demonstrate you can do something. Hopefully, to contribute. I think that's the thing about uh, anybody taking a job. But yeah, you're right. It was very different. Uh, the institution has just got its university full title, um, thanks to the efforts of an enormous number of people here who you know, steered it through that. Um, and it was now the time to do what we coined the phrase, and uh, it became a, a phrase across, you've been at Governors various other times, uh, willful institution building, which was about willfully setting about creating and sustaining a world-class institution for the benefit of our learners and we're in that process and I think you know that process it's a bit like saying you know have you finished your learning nobody's ever finished learning have we and it's the same with this as an institution ever finished the work will never be finished it will constantly be colleagues working away delivering improvements delivering enhancements delivering changes delivering responses that will take us on a continuous journey. So it is a continuous journey. So it is very different because the journey has been 18 years. It's been very, um, at times, uh, exciting, at times... Uh, tiring. Um, at times, yeah, I suppose. I mean, everybody everybody working here gets uh, gets tired, particularly at certain times of the year. The, the run-up to Christmas, you see students in that 
down cycle of time between November, early December, when the, the weather's getting miserable out in the north of England and, and people are saying, oh, you know, it's, it's taking its toll and you see it as it runs to exam period, don't you, in the, uh, in the, towards the end of the April, May time around, around now, really. Um, and yeah, people all get tired and I don't think Vice-Chancellor are exempt from that in terms of the process. Perhaps we're a little able to be removed from the immediate cycle of it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a busy, tiring job. But the thing is, with the vice chancellor's position or head of any institution, there is no working hours. All hours are working hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Where is work-life balance for the head of any institution? There is I think it's a very interesting question because it's very important. This is a very important national topic now in terms of work-life balance and people looking after their health, people ensuring that they sustain themselves on that journey. And you know, I wouldn't for one minute recommend anybody do anything other than that. You know, if you haven't got your health you're really going to struggle in terms of carrying out a big job like this. So health and, and well-being and, uh, is massively important for individuals. But also, you're absolutely right, you know, the, uh, the mobile phone is in that sense never off. Uh, there is no such thing for a head of an institution like this really as a, as a proper holiday in the sense that you know, things can happen and I think you have a duty when you're responsible for a large operation where there's a lot of people involved you have a duty to be accountable to those people at all times and available therefore within human reasonable bounds available to ensure that you can support them in their needs and the cube was in a classic illustration of that one you and I worked uh, I think it'd be fair to say um, certainly you worked tirelessly to deliver the things that were needed for the students and we worked together and you know it didn't matter that it was Saturday night or Sunday morning or halfway through Sunday morning into Monday morning did it it's uh, those things we have to do and that's important and so you're right um, there is no um, downtime in sense in that it's always in the back of your mind about what the institution needs or is doing or what you can do to help uh, people with their particular project or their area of work it's 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 always there not in a not in a negative way but it's 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 in, in many ways a positive way isn't it it's why people do the job i suppose during the times of crisis you did turn up you did turn up and that changed my perception completely and uh, you asked me what do you think we should start off with and the humility or just the ability to ask your younger ones or someone who has less experience than you tells that that is needed to run a successful institution for example i do not have enough knowledge that my 16 year old cousin would have about social media or content creation how important it is to let go of that ego that okay i know i know it all i know it all and uh, you know someone younger cannot help me or contribute with their experience because that's all education's about it's not about the age absolutely i mean i think um, if there's one tip to holding on to a job long term it's listen to other people um, the chances are um, very few people uh, have got a um, uh, very few people have the absolute um, humility ability. now as soon as absolute ability to be right every time okay so very few people have got the right answer every time I certainly do not have the right answer every Same. time um, and I think that the key thing in, in life is realizing that if you're in a room of five people ten people 15 people there's every chance that other people in that room are going to have a better answer to the problem than you do there's every chance that they may have something to add to it that you hadn't thought of because the chances of you actually, if you think about this in reality, the chances of you covering all those bases and all those issues in, on that topic um, immediately is very, very limited. Whereas the, the better position is to open up and say, okay, well, if it's a problem, what do we think the solutions might be? Now, eventually somebody has to make a decision 
about which of those solutions are adopted or which way to go. But that doesn't mean it's very unwise to make a decision without the right information. You can't wait for every piece of information. You'll never be able to make a decision. You'll never make a decision. If you wait for every single piece of information, it's highly improbable you will ever make a decision. (laughs) However, if you don't ask others what their view might be, it's highly probable you'll go down the wrong avenue. And that's the issue, isn't it? And and I think, you know, some people have often said to me, you know, how have you managed to stay as the longest serving or thereabouts, the longest serving head of a university? Uh, Because they're complex organisations, they're demanding organisations, they're fascinating organisations. and they're difficult organisations at times, as indeed most big, big complex um, bodies are. Um, but one of the ways to, to stay is to not believe your own publicity. You know, don't actually think to yourself... That this is got, about you. Yeah, well, it's definitely not about me. But don't, don't think to yourself that you have got the answers to these problems. Think to yourself you've got the key to facilitate the gathering of the answers the ability to collect the answers from someone else and to then maximise out and give people the right credit for those answers. Because the last thing you want is somebody who just steals all the answers and runs off. You know, What you want is somebody who goes, well, what's the problem here? How do we solve, you know, how do we willfully create an institution? You know, how did we look, we sat around with engineering. Engineering is a massively important part of the history of this university as a, as a mechanics institute. And about 15 years ago, it was fairly clear that engineering at that time, mechanical engineering particularly, was struggling in terms of both its, its recruitment. Uh, recruitment and uh, you know, the student Retention. participation. A whole range of performance indicators around that area were, were not at the best. They weren't at the best at the time. And that's not despite, you know, there were best efforts by colleagues involved in those areas, but it needed a refresh in all sorts of different ways. It was clear people were saying that around the place. Um, and of course, we then had to gather that information as to what would make that refresh and what should we do and of course ultimately up, up emerged the now National Centre for Motorsport Engineering working on high performance precision mechanical engineering really and that was a collective of ideas from lots and lots of people and yes it's had my sort of input yeah it's had my sort of name attached to it because you know yes as the Vice Chancellor University I have to be committed to something to help make it happen because often in organisations perhaps wrongly but often in organisations if the so-called person at the top or the so-called people running the organisation at the top in inverted commas um, don't like the top term but you know what I'm saying Um, the people who have have given responsibility to be uh, the chief exec of the organisation if they're not visibly carrying the flag for the idea the idea will often fail it will. But don't confuse carrying the flag with the idea with necessarily having had the idea. Okay. I'm not suggesting I didn't have an idea and I haven't got some ideas, but, but I'm saying that you have to then credit the people around you and say, It's you know, important to give done. people the due credit to run a healthy workplace environment, even in the senior management, isn't it? Absolutely, 100%. And, and to then, if you're going to grow an area, you know, we in that area we recruited, the institution recruited, I was involved in that recruitment, uh, people like Dr. Busfield, Mark Busfield, who've come from an amazing industrial career um, and can be recognised and respected by students, staff, colleagues across the organisation and across the industry alike. And then, you know, the important thing I think as someone with a leadership role is to let people then run with it and to actually then support them in running with it. Just sort of give them the direction but you know you give them the free hand to okay if this is right for recruiting more students if it's right for getting them more placements do it 
Yeah, and, and you have to also trust the fact that they know what they're doing. Um, and then you hope that they start to ask questions and start to ask other people's advice. And then you've got reasonable confidence they do know what they're doing then, because then they're taking a wider pool of opinion. Now, Professor Holmes, you talked about difference of ideas, giving people credit. And as an individual, do you think making the decision is the most difficult part or taking the action? Which is uh, the most difficult part? Well, was it someone said that a, a, a great idea badly uh, badly executed or badly implemented won't work? And, uh, you know, I think someone once said, you know, a poor idea well delivered is better than a, a great idea badly delivered. So it's a really difficult, uh, it's a difficult field, isn't it, that to, to be direct about. But I think very, very simply, if you've, if you've been careful in gathering a range of ideas and if you've explored it's very important to explore what other people think about things and particularly those people who know about it who've got real expert knowledge and understand the area or people who've got a particular interest in an area and then once you've gathered all those information together in one form or another then at some point you have to look at well what on balance and it isn't on balance is the best way forward for this or appears to be the best way forward for this because of course everybody makes mistakes so what appears to be the best way forward and then I think you have to then move forward in that direction constantly checking it out though and I think it was um, once uh, Margaret Thatcher once said didn't she you keep your, you keep your eye on the horizon but you prepared to tack to get there and you may have to adjust in terms of getting there so we know the institution knows you know you could ask anybody in this institution walk around this organization and ask anybody staff or students what's it about it's about getting the best possible experience for those people who come here Absolutely. What, what's more difficult making the decision or taking an action okay well they're both as I said equally problematic in their own way um, I think one without the other you know no decision followed by no action not very productive <laughs> you, you can permit then can't you in terms of great decision and no action still no good bad decision and action could be a disaster you know so they have to go hand in glove don't they hand in hand these two you know everyone makes mistakes but what i find is people find it difficult to accept that they have made a mistake <laughs> yeah so how important yeah. is it to let go of that side of ego and uh, professor holmes would you say that ego is always negative does it I, I feel that ego helps sometimes as well you know having a self-perception okay that's where I want my institution to be that's where I want to grow as an individual do you think ego is good and bad and does it help build an individual or you have to let go of it completely I, mean, I don't understand psychologically enough about the concept of ego I'm not a psychologist in that sense I think uh, what I what I would say is that I've said to colleagues in large public meetings you know, the institution has agreed through its planning processes or whatever um, arrangements, whether it be the Senate or the Executive Board or the Academic Board or the course committees or whatever process, that this is going to happen next. Let's say this new course, this new area of development, this new uh, new um, new facility. Um, and I've often said, and we're going to chase some funds for this because we need more funding. And I, I've often said, but if this fails in terms we don't get the funding, don't blame me immediately. Don't say, oh, look at that failure because if you don't try if you don't try you never fail but of course if you try you will fail and I think in, in ego terms back to the point you're making I think my advice to people around this would be that be prepared to occasionally look silly and make a mistake and don't be too bruised by it because often five out of six ideas will work but one won't 
And if you take it too much to heart that that one hasn't worked and your ego or your self-esteem or your, your view of yourself is damaged, then you're going to suffer an awful lot because I haven't met anybody yet who hasn't made a mistake or got something wrong and they therefore need to take it on board that say, well, that's just part of life. And as long as it doesn't harm anybody, as long as it doesn't you know, injure somebody, a mistake in a, in a collision that's, uh, that's you know, because you're using your mobile phone when you're driving something which is totally unacceptable, um, uh, is, of course, something you can't overlook. But if it's something that you're trying to do for the benefit of others and it goes wrong, be prepared to accept failure. We have spoken about perception. We have spoken about you being here for 18 years. And, you know, being in a public eye role, you know that certainly people can stoop to low heights <laughs> to put someone down. So how did you deal with uh, negative criticism? And how important is constructive criticism? Well, I think you have to remember that everybody, whoever you think they are, um, at the end of the day is human. And so any individual faced with a severe criticism of themselves um, has a, an introspection, a look at themselves. Is that true? Is that right? Is that what really happened? Is that what people really think? Is How did they get that impression? You know, all those things go through anybody's, anybody's thought processes, feeling processes, emotional processes. Everybody's human, aren't they? And the vice-chancellors are no different. You know, a vice-chancellor like me is no different. Is that right, what they're saying? How did that happen? Um, how did I give that impression? Should should I have given that impression? Um, is that is that, uh, is that how everybody sees me? Those are all questions that you would ask yourself. Uh, anybody sensible would ask themselves those, those questions. Um, and so, yeah, I, I ask myself those questions. Sometimes, of course, you have to recognise that it is the it is the function and duty in many cases of media as well as media as well as to be informative and as well as to shed light on things that ought to have light shed on them it's also in many ways their duty to sell copy and to be a little bit sensational and so sensational stories sell sensationally you know and yes, therefore and therefore you've got to say well okay have a little smile at that that's a that's a nice spin you know you see it on national news every every few occasions at least you'll see a what appears to be a pretty sensational spin on something and it gets the headline doesn't it um, and that's uh, that's clever media actually. selling the news it's clever media actually um, as long as it's underpinned by some form of uh, real information knowledge uh, you know some content and some proper content that can back it up uh, then I think you can always expect the the rise sort of what's the what's the TV show uh, um, the one based on private eye um, have I got news for you? That type of pro you can expect. It's fair comment, isn't it? In many cases, where people uh, have a quip and a, and a laugh, because actually, in life, it's important that people can laugh at themselves. If you can't laugh at yourself, then you're going to have a bit of a problem in this type of job, because actually, you have to be prepared at times to say, "Gosh, that was funny." I've seen some cartoons drawn about me on occasions, and you smile to yourself and you think, "That's witty. That is really very witty." You know, it may it may hurt in here somewhere, but actually, it's very witty at the same time. And I think if you don't take it that way, that basically those people, um, there are occasions important issues that people raise. And if they raise an important issue, it has to be dealt with seriously. If they raise a frivolous or an issue in a frivolous manner, or even trivialise an important issue, then in many ways that runs the issue down for, for the, the real benefit of the community. So for me, back to your, your simple question, how does one deal with that? Well, one looks at oneself carefully. I look at myself carefully, never mind this one. I look at myself carefully and I say, is that is that what I've really done? Is that what people really think? Uh, are they really informed? 
and then I, I move on and say, well, let's try and be better next time. Let's try and be clearer next time. Let's, let's try and make the message more effective next time about what I'm really trying to achieve. And there will be some things in life that people see in anybody that they don't either like or want to go down the same route. You know, the great thing about our free democracy, our society, is you can have different opinions. And as long as those different opinions are not offensive and deeply offensive to particular individuals or groups, they should be aired. And so, yeah, I'm open to hear them. Let's see what people have to say. Uh, but from my point of view, um, I can sleep at night. And I think that's a really important test for anybody in any of these roles. Can you, sleep based on what you've done, night. sleep peacefully at night, based on the fact you've done your very best within your capabilities, because we all have limited capabilities, within your capabilities to do the very best for whatever it is you're trying to do at that particular time. And if you can, in many ways, it doesn't matter what anybody says about it. It matters what you feel about it. And when you look yourself in the mirror or you go to bed at night and you sleep, what do you believe that you actually feel you've done and have you done it? Have you done it to benefit others? Have you done it for... Your own benefit? Uh, if you've done it for your own benefit, I think you're probably in trouble uh, in the sense that I think that self-serving is not a good position. Um, serving others, you know, Her Majesty the Queen, you know, your servant Elizabeth, what more do you want? It's not self-serving, it's serving a community. More it? than 70 years. Oh, phenomenal, phenomenal. I think the media has been uh, callous, has been careless, and have not lived up to the role that uh, broadcast media should do. Because in India they say that media uh, is the fourth pillar of the democracy. There's always three sides to the story. The story people know, the lies, and the truth. And sometimes people do not... Uh, have the ability to look at the truth because the truth remains within you. And if you can sleep at night with peace, okay, and you have your conscience, you're like, okay, that's fine. It's okay, people. When you can look in, you know, your partner in your eye, you can look yourself in the mirror and be like, okay, I did my job. I served the people. And it's part of the rule criticism comes with it. We have seen with recent issues that, that there are different people's truths and they're equally valid in many many ways you know there's a lot of media sensationalism at the minute about you know some prominent figures who see things very differently i think you've got to be careful just to have you know that description you had of the three the right the wrong and the or the one view the other view and the truth truths vary with context in some cases you know they're an absolute truth like you know i'm going to drop this the glasses and they're going to hit the floor that's a reasonable truth unless we're in a zero gravity context that it's going to hit the floor you know but other people most subjective opinion it's very difficult to get lost where the where an absolute truth lies. What you've got is a series of different perspectives and opinions, often which are equally valid in different ways on that particular issue. And you have to be therefore be really careful about saying, well, you know, I'm right on this or whatever, because actually there's no right or wrong. Exactly. There's no exactly. right. Or wrong. There's, a, there's a many many shades of grey in terms of different areas of, of, of opinion. And, and management, in many ways, is about navigating those. Um, very complex fields of grey. Someone once said to me the importance of authentic truth to yourself, that you've, you, you, you're, you're true to yourself, you're true to your beliefs, whatever those beliefs are for that individual, and that you actually authentically believe what you are in what you are doing. You know, back to the point about, you know, I believe in education. I wouldn't be in education. I don't believe in education. It's, it's, it would be pointless. I don't believe that any of our colleagues are in education other than they believe they're, they're here because they believe in education. Same thing. We talked about the late Queen who has contributed to the United Kingdom and to the Commonwealth for over 70 years. I know you have had your interactions with her. I know you have met her. And you also play a very important role when it comes to 
the royal family and in the northwest could you talk about that role a very small role in this in terms of I, i'm fortunate enough to have been asked to be part of the manchester lieutenancy which is a, a an organization which helps represent the charitable and other interests of the, the crown in this area to tr try and promote good really on behalf of the crown in this area and to do charitable things and support charitable activities and i was fortunate enough to be asked i think it was 2014 2015 that sort of time to join the lieutenancy and become uh, a deputy to the lord lieutenant here in the county uh, lord lieutenants for those people who don't know what they are lord lieutenants historically were established by the british British monarchy hundreds of years ago as the people who um, acted on behalf of the monarch in, in an area and so uh, you've got to remember in those days you know there, were, there was no there weren't any railways there weren't any telephone systems there weren't any TV systems there weren't any uh, mobile phone systems there weren't any texting systems there was no national news to watch you know in terms of you couldn't switch on you so how on earth did a, a monarch uh, exercise some form of influence across the entire country without representatives in each area and so they came up with the Lord Lieutenant who in those days usually had a, a large castle and sort of the ability to uh, create an army and, and uh, fight on behalf of the country and the crown etc. Uh, nowadays the Lieutenancy is a modern version of that. Uh, you'll see Lord's Lieutenant and their deputies like me the, uh, wearing a, a military uniform in many cases or a badge of office showing their connection with the crown um, but we don't any have castles anymore we don't have horses anymore and we don't have armies anymore although some of us occasionally will wear a sword ceremonially as part of the the um, the splendid nature of an event. So for example, if you're giving out, I, I often have the privilege, it's a massive privilege uh, uh, and honor of being able to hand out uh, British citizenships to new citizens in the town hall here and in Manchester, etc. And you know what it means to people who leave countries and in difficult situations and come over. It's phenomenal and the, the sense of positivity, I mean, I did one last week again, I do them several, uh, several uh, a month. And um, you know, I came back and said to Louise at home, uh, it's such a positive, uplifting activity. You know, we as volunteers, as part of the Lieutenancy, volunteer our time uh, freely to go on and do these activities on behalf of, effectively, the head of state, the the, uh, the King, King Charles in this case. Um, but we uh, we get so much individually back from the positivity in the room because every individual in that room receiving their citizenship certificate on that day to become a fully fledged British citizen has got has had a journey, an enormously, in some cases, tortuous and difficult journey, uh, a complex and long journey, but a fulfilling journey that they're here, they're part of British society and they're welcome uh, across the entire, particularly the borough, across the Greater Manchester and across the UK. And that is such a great privilege to be able to be involved in that. And you, you get a great, a great, really positive, warm feel uh, about that. It's a bit like watching graduation in a way. You get that same warm feel about it where people have achieved their goal, they've moved on to the, onto the next stage. But of course, I had the privilege, as you said, of meeting on, on a number of occasions, uh, Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who was uh, a phenomenal person. I mean, in every way, you can't, you could be on a podcast for five hours explaining what she's done in this country and still not exhaust it. Uh, Her Majesty, when I met her, I was working on the opening of the university campus in Lincoln. Okay. 1996, uh, it was the occasion of the, the official visit of Her Majesty and His Royal Highness the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, they spent three hours with us in the campus. They showed enormous interest in what was going on. This was, this was the, the first new university built in the UK for a quarter of a century. And the Queen had been oh, there. 
The Queen had been there in 1952-53 uh, in her coronation year and she hadn't been back until 1996 to see what was going on and uh, of course the new university had been established, the new campus and I had a, a role in it, uh, working with colleagues to establish that. The presence of the Sovereign, uh, the head of the state, the Queen is an enormous compliment to an organisation and to a town of course, uh, representing the embodiment of the state. And that's, that's, that's really important that whether you're a royalist or not a royalist in terms of uh, opinions, what you have to remember is that the, the head of the state state embodies in this sense is the focus of the state, whether it be the President of the United States as an elected, or France, or Germany, the Chancellor, or whatever, or whether it be the, the, the King uh, or Queen, in this case King uh, of the United Kingdom. Um, they, are, they embody the state for that moment. But Professor Holmes, when we talk about the newer generation, there are criticisms that have been made about the monarchy. You know, the monarchy itself, uh, if we talk about the Prince Harry and his better half, they have had criticisms of the institution themselves. What would you say, how important is this monarchy to the United Kingdom in terms of economy, in terms of social and the cultural value it brings to people? Well, I think you'd have to start from a point of view of, um, I used to be a principal lecturer in a business school. And in business schools, they used to say, you know, businesses are successful when they have a unique selling point or a distinctive competence or a unique thing that is about them that draws people to them. The United Kingdom has a distinct and very unique, very, very established uh, royal household, uh, a British monarchy, which you've only got to go down, I was in London a couple of days ago, you've only got to drive past, I drove past Buckingham Palace in a, in a taxi, and as you drive past Buckingham Palace, the, the number of visitors um, milling around pictures. is phenomenal. And, and I, I actually thought, what's happening? What's going on? And then I realised nothing was going on. People were just massively interested in this unique selling point of the United Kingdom, known as a, a hereditary monarchy, the, the, the establishment we have as the head of the state. Um, and they're all getting excited because the coronation's uh, about to take Sixth place. May. Sixth of May. And um, the, the stands were being put up. And when you went down there, when you were talking about the, the Platinum Jubilee, you know, I, I managed to organise with you the tickets for you to go to the, um, the party at the palace. And you were adjacent to those stands right outside the palace. And they're building them again now for the, for the coronation. They're building a similar uh, viewing gallery. And uh, the tourists are fascinated. They're interested. They want to see what's happening. They've come to the UK. They're spending money. They're doing that to invest in the UK's economy. Um, and, of course, um, in terms of the world politic, leadership, I think I've identified. The best thing I can say about leadership is that short-term leadership of big projects often does not work. Long-term. It's long-term, reliable, stable base. And the difference that the President of the United States, who has some wonderful people uh, doing those offices on occasions throughout history, it's not long enough. You're talking of a four-year period or an eight-year period. That's not long. And, and to be head of state, as opposed to being prime minister, it's not long to steer a state. Whereas if you get a longer period of, in this case, a monarchy, you, you know, 70 amazing years from the last queen, you get a level of stability. And I think at one point I heard someone say on the radio or television on one occasion that, that the Queen stood for everything we agreed about as a society in terms of the things that we felt were truly about the United Kingdom. And politicians stand for, in each different party, everything we disagree about, and that's their job. They're very good at ensuring that different opinions are shared and different opinions are, are uh, expressed because that's the right in a free democracy and so hence you have different parties with different views. So they, they embody, by almost definition, by the, the party structure, the things we disagree about. 
but the monarchy or the head of state should embody the things that are central to being the United Kingdom. Um, and that doesn't have to be a hereditary monarchy, it just has to be a long term. You know, if the United Kingdom were to change what it's about every eight years, you start to wonder, well, what are we about? And what are we, where are we going as a country? Yeah, exactly. So, in one word, Professor Holmes, would you say the monarchy is still relevant or is it old-fashioned? <laughs> I'd say that under the current king, it's highly relevant. And I think he's a modernising king. I think he's going to develop the monarchy further. I think William and Kate will do a fabulous job following up on that. And from my point of view, yeah, it's, it's here to stay. Growing up, during your university, was it in your mind that, okay, I have to be a leader or I have to be in a certain position? Did you manifest it? Did you manifest this? No. Um, I, um, I can only speak personally, but, but I don't like the notion of being an aspiring leader or of being a leader. I like the notion of doing your best at what you can do and seeing where that takes you. And that's a personal thing to me in the sense that I think um, people engage in leadership training and that's a really important aspect of things that they want to follow. But for me, uh, it was never about let's be a leader. I think I, I can't imagine waking up on a morning even now thinking, oh, let's be a leader today. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine that concept. I can imagine getting up in the morning and thinking, right, what needs to be done today? What have I got on my agenda that I need to sort out? What have I got to, which problem have I got to solve or help other people solve or help other people sol ask them to help me solve? Um, but I think, unless I've got this totally wrong, I think, for me, thinking of yourself as a leader is the wrong starting point. I agree on that. Yeah, yeah. I agree on that. Yeah. Either I, you have one or not, sorry. Yeah. And, and I, think <laughs> the, I think the starting point is, is what is it that I can contribute to my sphere. That could be a small group of people. It could be, if you were the President of the United States, an enormous, the world, it could be an enormous sphere, couldn't it? But what can I contribute to that, given the, the things I can get my hands on and support people with or control or, or help move forward? And in that way, I suppose, people will decide whether you're a leader or not. Because, you know, they'll look around. I don't think, you know, if you look at the great leaders in history, and I, you could name them right the way back from, I suppose, would be Julius Caesar would be, I suppose, considered at one point. You go all the way through to modern day, I suppose, and society will judge whether they were a leader or not in their own society, whether it be a small group of people, whether you're the scout leader uh, or whether you're the, you know, the, the, the orchestra leader. Um, if you're not good and people don't recognise it, there'll be an awful tune. You know, if you're the orchestra leader. And the same thing, I think, applies with, with leadership. Um, you can't just wake up and be like, OK, I'm going to be a leader today. I don't think so. I think you could find yourself um, thrust into that position by, you know, by circumstances. We were thrust into that position by the circumstances around the cube that day when students needed to be rehoused. And all of a sudden, uh, you and others around you uh, took very effective leadership positions and assumed responsibility and made things happen. Yes. Um, and and people followed that. And all of a sudden you discovered you've got a leader and you've got <laughs> a group of followers because actually they've taken it forward and that's what they were doing when they were watching you do that. And I think um, for me, um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the wrong way around. The, the right way around is what can I do to contribute? And if that results in you leading something, then that's really, really good. As the chief executive of the organisation, I have some duties and responsibilities to the organisation and to its people. And those duties are set out in job descriptions and things that you can follow. And they say that you have to do certain things. Um, 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that the staff or the students see you as a leader. It just means you've got things on your job description. It's about taking that accountability. It's about taking responsibility. It comes from inside. Okay, uh, you have to wake up and do things and it's a lot about self-discipline. Uh, Professor Holmes, what was your first reaction when you heard about there's a fire in a privately owned student accommodation uh, which has no relation with the university but it has 220 odd students stuck some of them not students from the university some of them are from Salford, Manchester but what was your first reaction? I mean the first reaction is oh my goodness I hope nobody's hurt you know the number one reaction is is everybody safe? That's the first reaction and then the second reaction is okay let's have a look at what can be done to give them the appropriate accommodation, give them the right place to, to lay their head to sleep that night. You know, once you've made sure that everybody's safe or you're making sure in that process that people are safe. But yeah, my number one reaction is, is everybody safe? Uh, gosh, is anybody at risk here in terms of... Is, I mean, there could have been a tragedy, couldn't there, in that private accommodation? How lucky were we? I think it, I think we were very... I, you know, I think life as well, going back to the whole thing, I think life is about... I, I don't know how you describe... Stroke of luck? Uh, I think, yeah, I think... In many cases, right place, right time for people. Oh, gosh, in bad news, wrong place, wrong time for people. Um, but in terms of uh, this, we were... Uh, something was smiling on us. We were on the right side that day. Something happened I agree with people. you 100%. Um, and um, we saw a student being rescued. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the so close to disaster uh, was that the, the fire service did, uh, as indeed did colleagues on the ground, a phenomenal job. Um, but, but yeah, it was so close, wasn't it? And one, one can only, well, not sleep worrying about what could have happened in that circumstance. Um, but yeah, my first reaction was, what, how, do we, how do we look after these people and rehouse them? And I think it'd be fair to say that the university group, as it pulled together, did an amazing job looking after those people. Almost three months later, there was a pandemic. But it's very unsettling, isn't it? But for the students, a fire, losing their laptops, lagging behind on their assignments, due dates, deadlines, which we supported them with. Uh, so what was your first reaction, Professor Holmes, when you heard about the pandemic? I mean, I think incredulous to start with because none of us had experienced anything like it, had we? You know, the notion of the Prime Minister of this country coming on television and saying, uh, you must stay at home. You know, that, that I can see that moment when Boris Johnson said that, you know, play it back in my mind. What does this? What does this mean? What does this mean for our students, our staff, our institution? How long will it? You know, my, my thoughts are: how long will this? How long will this last? Um, what will be the impact? You know, um, will will organisations survive? You know, think about the hotel and catering industry. You know? Oh God, nope, nobody allowed to you know eat out until Rishi did the help out to eat out campaign later on after the camp uh, the pandemic. But at the time, you know. Will, will the economy ever be the same again? You know, I'm an economist by original training. It's a long time since I did any proper economics. But as an economist, how long can the British economy sustain this? How, how long the world economy can sustain this? So those are my thoughts. My first thoughts were, you know, this is really believable. This is 2019-2020. This is the modern you know, world. The, mod the modern, the modern globalized world where people travel. You know hourly across continents uh, you can't stop something spreading it's, it's almost impossible um, and yet here we are being asked to uh, stay, at stay at home and no indication as to how long it might last um, and no indication of what the plan was to get out of it because actually at that time understandably nobody actually knew and there were these awful pictures coming from Italy at the time the, the, the dreadful pictures from China but the, the, the line up of, of, of um, 
casualties of, of coffins of, in Italy was horrifying. Scary. Horrifying. It was scary. It was scary. Um, and of course, my my next uh, duty and responsibilities then. So okay. So what does this institution have to do? How do we have to respond to this? And great institutions fell during the pandemic. Uh, absolutely, they did indeed. Um, the uh, advantage I had been working on, I had been working on ensuring that our finances, uh, with my colleagues in finance, were exceedingly strong just before the pandemic. It's unfair to say um, it was predictable, because it wasn't predictable as such, but it was looking at it, if you looked back sort of to October, November time, you could see something wasn't right in terms of world, world, world health, world health organizations, organizations views on what w, might go on. WHO. And so we were beginning to prepare for how long can we sustain in a in a difficult circumstances. You know, think about you know, think about medieval England whenever they used to go back into their castle and close the gates. How long could they live on the food inside? You know, if they were Not under long. siege, and and of course they would try, wouldn't they, to bring in as much food and as much you know uh, sustenance as they could. And so my job was to ensure we had as much financial food and sustenance as we could to support students. It might be, what I thought at the time, it might be that they can't enrol for a second year. It might be they won't be paying any fees because associated with that. How do we pay the staff? Uh, it might be that we can't get the courses uh, delivered in the way we want them to the students uh, in a timely manner. Uh, how do we deal with that? How do you know? There are all sorts of massive organisational questions that follow from from a lockdown like that. That if you're in my job, you have to face. Um, and uh, and then the issue of when we thought we might be able to come out of lockdown, how do we reintroduce normal life in the vertical? And we were the first university we the first. in the country because we were proactive. We were proactive with the media approach. We were proactive of what we were delivering, and we delivered a safe sort of educational environment for the students where they could come to the university do the courses you know there are some courses that are practical that cannot be done all online so to be able to do that and at the time the presence of the union students messaging me directly on social media you getting hundreds of emails every day from various stakeholders students councils organizations it was a unique period professor homes and i'm glad it's somewhat past <laughs> me too <laughs> me too i think the uh, i mean the i remember producing the the famous owl video if you recall <laughs> yes uh, educated or learned the owl i think there were two there were two videos ultimately um, trying to map out the student journey and i sat uh, i can remember sitting 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 in uh, a home with a piece of paper mapping out what a student might need to do in terms of getting from where they were in a safe manner this is the post lockdown but not fully operational period this this early adopter moment when the university were going to open early because I believed and many of my students were telling me through the SU and through uh, course boards and through feedback from student reps that they wanted to be together, that that they want to learn together on campus and they needed to for some subjects very much so. And so this, this, this student journey, I remember thinking, okay, so how are you going to get from your wherever you live into the university because public transport was not recommended because they were saying that you, you couldn't yeah, two you can pass apart, it on you could pass it on in, in the particles in the air only and emergency workers are recommended to use exactly, it exactly so many and things so, and so you know so um, I came along with this idea of buying bicycles a thousand, uh, a thousand bicycles yeah a thousand bicycles as a starting point with a view that if we needed to buy more we would buy more um, and uh, you know I remember attending a meeting of all the vice chancellors by by uh, Teams and Zoom you know by the uh, um, the media and um, 
them saying to me, well, what's this about bicycles? You know, I said, well, how on earth are you going to get somebody? Because a lot of our students are local, which is great, which means that they are within a bike ride. You know, if students are in Southampton and coming to Bolton, they're not within a bike ride. Obviously, it's, it's 300 miles. But if you're living down the Dean Road or somewhere and you've got an opportunity to get into university and you, it's just a little bit too far maybe to walk but far enough to, to, to cycle, cycle. I thought this is the solution because you've got fresh air. You know, you're in the fresh air. So the bicycles came. I remember, I remember ringing, ringing Halfords and saying, I'd like to buy some bicycles, you know, and then saying, well, yes, because this was before people were, were, there was a shortage ultimately of bicycles, oddly enough. Um, and um, and I'm saying, uh, well, how many? I said, well, I'll start with a thousand if you have them. And, and they thought I was a crank caller. <laughs> you know, they thought this is a crank caller. Why, why on earth is this person wanting? But um, I mean, it, 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 to me, in this video, as you see, it makes obvious sense. It's a way into. It takes you past the bus stops. It takes past the train stations. It takes you past the vehicles because many of our students. Uh, don't have a, don't have their own car, don't have their own transport, and wouldn't be encouraged to share a car because again you're in close proximity in a pandemic and it wouldn't be appropriate to share a car. Um, so the bikes came in, and then the next thing came in the airport scanners, which would scan you for temperature because everybody temperature was an important symbol, wasn't it? If you reflect on this, and so it went through to supermarket trolleys in the library to ensure you were uh, two meters apart because that was the important rule, wasn't it, etc. And that that particular concept. Backwards unique forwards. learning experience, Professor. A unique learning Very experience. unique. Very unique, yeah. yeah. What was interesting is I noticed that, and I'm sure Emirates uh, had an enormous team working on this as well, but Emirates did a very similar approach to their return to flying, including the, the airport scanners and the temperature scanners and the screens, etc., that we were operating on. So the, the learning experience had meant that uh, concurrently we had learnt and developed this at the same time as some of the greatest companies in the world, like Emirates, were developing their, their ideas. Uh, sometimes as a young person who is thinking about inflation who's thinking about recession and who's unsure about higher education or getting into the university say university of bolton they they are unsure of making that decision they have their a levels in a few months what would your selling point be what would you say that you know you should come to the university of bolton okay well, the first thing i would say is that um, formal education and qualifications are really useful for life wherever you go and whatever you do as long as it interests you as long as it's something you have a passion for that you want to know more about or develop or contribute more to um, it's worthwhile and as an economist I would say um, higher education degree level education particularly uh, UK based higher education is one of the greatest investments you could ever make in your life the return on that investment will be uh, it'll be individual it'll be personal it'll be self-fulfilling and it'll probably be financial in terms of the return uh, on, on that investment education is not a cost education is an investment that's that's what it's about uh, why come to Bolton well I think it's fairly obvious why I come to Bolton uh, if you come to this institution you'll be welcomed with open arms particularly if you're from a rich and diverse background across the world because we have such a rich and diverse community and I think that's really important because you can easily feel comfortable because everybody is from all sorts of different backgrounds from all sorts of different places and it's therefore easy to fit in isn't it because actually one of the important things is feeling comfortable when you're learning and so why come to Bolton because it's a welcoming inclusive organization why come to Bolton because actually we are just about as good as it gets at teaching and learning anywhere in the United Kingdom you know you could you could uh, match us against any organization for our teaching and learning our our colleagues here who do that job are amazing 
they're interested in the individual, they're interested in helping them learn, they're interested in helping them expand their, 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 their knowledge. Grow as human and, beings. And grow, and grow as human beings. And so why would you come here? Well, it's an inclusive community, it's a welcoming community. The teaching and learning is fabulous. Uh, you will find uh, friends for life, uh, as many people do at, at universities. You'll find opportunities that you never thought were imaginable. You know, would you have ever imagined Ansh being standing there at the Queen's Platinum Jubilee uh, concert in the, in the Mall as one of the ticket holders? No. Um, our current president is going to the, uh, the Windsor Castle um, uh, party that's being held for the coronation uh, next week. Uh, these are opportunities that he and you have got by being by being here and by seizing those opportunities and taking them and being involved and there are legions of other opportunities I, I met with a, um, a university and college football team a Bolton University and Bolton College football team uh, over in the Middle East only a few months ago where the young people were out there uh, playing for the playing for the institution against an international team an Emirates team a life experience that they couldn't have had if they hadn't been here so why come here well many and varied things to do you'll get a great education You'll get brilliant value for money, I believe, uh, relative to uh, your life's investment, and it will change your life. Um, and if you commit to it, it will change it for the better. As someone who has been in similar situations, I would like to ask you this. As someone who has been a mentor to me, who has had time for me, I would like to ask you how important was it to put yourself in uncomfortable situations? How important was it for you to leave those people behind who would hinder your growth? I think getting out of your comfort zone is a really good learning experience. Um, I think it's something that certainly happened to me on many, many occasions. You know, I uh, when I first started lecturing uh, in a college, this is uh, many years ago, it's a lot longer than 18 years ago, um, I used to be physically um, uh, sick before I went into a class to, to teach. I was well out of my comfort zone. I did was not Was it like, like nerves? Nerves. I did not like the idea of public speaking. I didn't like the idea no, of being. I, oh, yeah. I, I don't agree. Ah, I don't you know. see, you see, this is. What's I, can't, amazing. I can't believe that. Yeah. Well, I, I look back now, and and certainly my uh, my family, my children look back and say, really, because normally you give me a microphone now and they can't stop me, you know, in terms of speaking. <laughs> but in in those days, I was terrified of public speaking. You used to um, feel sick. I used to feel physically sick. I was physically sick. I would physically run to the bathroom, you know, in terms of before a class. And that's a fact, you know, in terms of, and that went on week after week after week. And But I wanted to work in this profession because I could see the benefit of education for myself and for other individuals, but that didn't stop the nerves. So I was well outside my comfort zone. And, and many jobs, as you move through your career in this sector or in any sector, you will find that you're asked to do new things that you've not done before uh, for that job. And all of a sudden, it's outside your comfort zone. But actually, you do learn a lot from that once you get once you get into that process and be prepared to to risk it yourself to take to take that risk and take that chance. So I would re I would seriously recommend that. I think it's really important that nobody feels that they have to follow a crowd. I think it's really important that nobody feels that they have to be, uh, if everybody around them says don't do that, don't do it, because actually if it's something that will fulfil you in life and it's a positive thing, I mean obviously if someone says don't do something criminal you shouldn't do it, but in terms of positive things, if you want to do something then you know our job is to help you fly, it's to help you achieve that and help you be successful and I think you would want to re reassess your group that you were with if they were trying to stop you doing things all the time.
I think you'd want to reassess your role in that group because why, why would you want people around you who were a negative force who were saying don't do that don't do that don't do that if it's something you want oh, to do or you can't do it yeah you can't you see I mean they, 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 I mean, they used to say to me at school and I genuinely believe that there is no such word as can't there's only want uh, everybody can do as you said they could become president of the student union they could become whatever they wanted to become uh, with the right with the right attitude the right opportunity which is where the luck comes in, in the opportunity, um, and the right support. And, you know, you talked about Condal there, and he had those things, attitude, opportunity, and support, and, and it was successful. You've had similar, and uh, and I've had similar, you know, in terms of those. those. And I think people have to um, try and position themselves in a place where they can take advantage of that. Um, people were laughing when I started this podcast, and I used that as a motivation. I used negative energy as a motivation as well. Okay, it's fine. You cannot see the investment or the time or the opportunity or the ability that it takes to organize something or, uh, yeah, it takes, it has, everything has, every role has its own challenges. Uh, so how important is it to just stick to your focus, stick to your vision, even if people are you know calling you mad or people are calling you that, okay, you cannot do this or you won't be able to achieve this. How important is just keep going even if it's alone and it's in the right direction. I, mean, I think there's some fabulous international examples of people who uh, people criticise who've done amazingly well haven't they? So uh, it's uh, really important. You know, you, you look at people talk about Elon Musk on occasions, they're really critical. Uh, I don't think he's done so bad, you know. He's, uh, he's made a lot of progress, you know. And uh, uh, the same thing I think should apply to everyone. If you want to do something and you're committed to doing it, don't be put off by the naysayers or the people who say use them as a motivation absolutely absolutely use them as a motivation yeah